This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 99, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today, John and I are joined by none other than Don Higgins. We're talking late rut, late season, and hunter ethics. You won't want to miss this one, so stay tuned. All right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you all are doing well out there in white tail land. So I'm pretty sure the season for the most for most of us are, is over. Um, of course, here in PA, it wrapped up here there last weekend. I guess a week week ago Saturday. Um, so that was the last kind of hunt I had. Was looking for. I always kind of look at. Well, I guess let me put it this way: at the end of the first season is always a little bit bittersweet because by the time that rolls around, I'm pretty I'm pretty well beat up and a little worse for wear and I'm actually and I start really kind of looking forward to um goose hunting a little bit just because it's kind of a relaxing hunt you still have to get up early but you're in you know typically you know one of the spots that I hunt with a couple buddies it's like we'll be in a blind together we kind of sit and talk do a little calling geese come by they land you're like they, they cup up and kind of roll in on you and you, you take a crack at them you drop a few and it's it's usually a morning hunt and I get to kind of go home and take care of whatever things I need to take care of around the house. So I can kind of, it's a nice kind of a hunt life balance, if you will, because during the course of archery season, there is not much hunt life balance. It is all hunt balance uh, for the, for the most part. So the wife is usually pretty excited whenever the first season ends and the goose season rolls around. Cause she knows I'll be home, home a little bit more often. So I did hunt some, did uh, a little goose hunt this past weekend, got nada missed. Um, and then I had to, had to get out of there, had some things to take care of. Uh, in the afternoon, so I really only got kind of got the hunt for a couple hours in the morning, but nonetheless, it was good. Of course, we have the Christmas holiday that's coming up, which everyone I'm sure is gearing up for. I hope everyone has gotten out and gotten their uh, 
got their Christmas lists filled and finished all their holiday shopping because I'm typically the guy that is in the store the night before, like two days before battling the crowds and it's and it's horrendous. So I actually am ahead of the game and got everything done except for one thing that I need to order for the uh, for the wife and then I will be all all wrapped up and hopefully there'll be some uh, hopefully there'll be some hunting gifts flying around um, in my stocking and so forth, which wouldn't be a a terrible thing. Um, one quick announcement or a bit of housekeeping here to just kind of give you guys a heads up on before we get uh, started with today's show is uh, I, can, I know I kind of mentioned it a couple months ago or two months ago that, I, that I'm going to have a larger announcement that's coming. I can't kind of let the cat out of the bag yet, but just want to let you guys know that um, I do have something in the works that I think is going to be really cool. Um, I'm hoping that you know a lot of you out there listening will take part in. Um, I'm thinking that it's going to launch soon after the first of the year, uh, is when it'll, is when it'll get started. Um, and I'm really excited to, um, to, to share it with you guys. I can't, I'm sorry. I can't give any more details than that right now. Um, you don't want to let the cat out of the bag because, you know, as things kind of happen, you know, you, you hit hiccups along the way and I don't want to say when it's going to be here and then have to kind of pull back from that, um, based on any hiccups that we have kind of along the way. So just kind of keep your ears peeled. I'll be making an announcement shortly after the first of the year, um, here on the podcast. And of course, if you're on the email list, you'll, you'll get that as well on the, on the, on the newsletter that comes out every, every month. So keep your ears peeled for that. But today we have a killer show. So today is uh, one that I've been looking forward to for a while. Uh, we have Don Higgins on from real world outdoor products. Uh, Don, of course, is of the um, the the 400 inches of bone fame from last year. I mean, he's been a, he's been a, a whale of a hunter uh, for a lot of years. He's got 40 plus years uh, in 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 the industry, in the outdoors, you know, hunting and also working in the outdoors as a writer, being on you know in, in film. Um, but Don, aside from all those things, Don is just a quality person. Um, it's always kind of good you, when you speak with him, whether it's a deer hunting strategy. Um, or just, you know, life in general, I think you'll kind of find in this, um, in this podcast, he brings a sense of levity to the conversation, which is oftentimes lost. Um, and it's kind of refreshing. I won't say it's kind of refreshing. I'll say that it is refreshing to have, to have a conversation with someone who, um, is as developing their convictions and their beliefs and, um, and, 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 and is fully and has, you know, I guess kind of expresses those in full candor. Um, and it's just nice to have someone like Don, the outdoor industry. It's nice to have someone like him that you can talk to and get his perspective because, um, he has a, he has a really, really keen sense of how to just kind of cut through the, uh, cut through the BS and get to the meat of what you're trying to talk about. And for that, I, I'm appreciative of, uh, of him spending some time with us. And, and then aside from that, of course, his whitetail knowledge that he shared with us during the course of the hour and a half or so that, that John and I had a chance to talk with him. So without further ado, let's go ahead and talk about a couple of the partners that help make us make this podcast possible before we jump to John. So first and foremost, we are brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest, lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? Tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty. And right now, when you visit wickedtreegear.com, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. And if you didn't know, those hand saws fit very nicely inside of a stocking. So just heads up on that. We're also brought to you by Exodus uh, Outdoor Gear. The Exodus Trek is a byproduct of all the consumer voices who have been excited about what Exodus trail cameras have to offer, but just can't fit a $200 camera in their budget. And that's 
All right. A budget-friendly camera backed by the industry's leading warranty is now here. The track is 145 bucks. has the same proprietary shell design as the Lift Series camera, five-year warranty, same customer service, photo, video, time-lapse, and hybrid modes, all with a simple, single-line backlit LED display. You also get uh, just about 20,000 images on a set of lithium batteries. I saw someone asking the other day about how many images you know you can anticipate getting in a trail camera, you know, in one set of batteries. The lift will give you about 20k, and the I'm sorry, the uh, trek will give you about 20k, and the lift will give you about 25,000. So those are some pretty good numbers. If you'd like to learn more about Exodus trail cameras, check them out at exodusoutdoorgear.com. If you dig what you are seeing, use Truth promo code at checkout and save yourself 20 bucks. Also, this time of year, you're going to be taking some food back and forth to Grandma's house. You're going to be going to Christmas parties. You're going to go to New Year's Eve or New Year's parties. And then, you know, you might just even be driving to ATA making a road trip with your buddies. And when you're doing all those things, you probably need a cooler to keep your drinks cold, to keep your food cold as you're traveling. So if you do, or if you are going to travel... Even if you're not, you should check out Glacier Coolers, simply the world's finest, whether they're hunt, whether you're hunting, fishing, camping, or if you're going to ATA or Grandma's house, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com. Promo code TRUTH. Save yourself 20%. Now, without further ado, let's get Don Higgins on the line. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today we are joined by a gentleman that probably doesn't need a whole lot of introduction to most of you all out there listening. We are joined by none other than Don Higgins of, uh, you know, of course, of his 400-inch fame of last year. He's a, he's a veteran of putting down many mature deer. He does a ton of work in the outdoor industry with his habitat consulting business, his seed business. Uh, he's a man of many talents. So, Don, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to, to talk deer hunting. I'm just appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, you bet. It's like I couldn't think of a much better guy to talk some deer hunting hunting with you. So, you know, I, this question here is just really to get the party started because I know a lot of folks know know who you are. You've been, you know, a guy that's been, um, you know, well known, of course, in the outdoor industry and as as a hunter in general, you know, for a long time. But for anyone out there who may have been living under under a rock for the past forty years, if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, and what you're doing in the whitetail world professionally. Okay, well, uh, I live in Central Illinois. Grew up in a small town here in Central Illinois, and that's just crazy about the outdoors. From the time I could, uh, basically, the time I was old enough to walk, I was uh, just exploring the outdoors. Uh, then, when I was 16 years old, I shot my first whitetail, and on that day, I basically forgot about everything else. And uh, you know, I have not uh, turkey hunted a day in my life. I've not been fishing in over 25 years. I can't even remember the last time I small game hunted or anything like that. Uh, for me, it's all about big whitetails. Right. Um, to, to make a living, I, uh, well, I, I've got a lot of iron fire, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the co-owners of Real World Wildlife Products, a food plot seed and deer nutrition company. Um, I have a consulting business that uh, has just exploded. Uh, where I meet with landowners from around the Midwest primarily and uh, design plans uh, specific to their properties. Uh, I do some, some seminars. Uh, I don't know, do six or eight or ten of those a year. Uh, I've authored a couple of books, uh, which I sell on my website. 
Uh, basically anything to keep them getting a real job and being able to work with deer hunters. <laughs> I like the uh, I like the sounds of that. That's for uh, that's for sure. I don't know that I would uh, I wouldn't complain about that that life very much if uh, if I do say so myself. Um, the uh, I know you've been doing a lot of work with you know of course in the in the recent past with your you know some of the the I guess supplemental feed mineral et cetera that side of your that side of your business and i know you've had a deer herd like in in the past or i think recently if i'm not mistaken you just recently got rid of that deer herd uh, or the the last few of them you know how much did you you know how much you know developing those products and stuff and having that herd around you really kind of you know teach you teach you anything i guess is what i'm asking well you know it, it was uh it was a unique experience i i I acquired a small herd of captive deer and oh, way back, uh, I had them over 20 years. I, I haven't had them for over a year now. I dispersed that herd to uh, basically give me more time in the woods than anything else. But, uh, you know, I, I got them to, to basically learn more about whitetails. I, I just wanted to be the best hunter I could possibly be. And I thought, well, having a few deer around, I'll learn about them, learn their vocalizations and things like that. But, you know, in the end, what I learned just far exceeded what I ever expected to learn. Um, and on the nutrition end of things, I started doing experiments with uh, basically on nutrition and genetics. Um, for 11 straight years, I artificially bred to some of the biggest bucks in the world uh, to learn about antler genetics. And uh, at the same time, I was doing research on nutrition. And you know, just the, the things that I learned played a big role in some of the products we developed at Real World Wildlife Products. Now, that wasn't the only thing. We, uh, we've we also got two professional uh, livestock nutritionists on staff, as well as one of the leading whitetail veterinarians in the world, uh, Dr. Shipley at the University of Illinois, that, that we consulted with as we put these products together. But... Uh, you know, just learning about the feeding habits uh, of deer is, uh, it, it was really eye-opening. For example, one one quick note I'll, I'll throw out there was, I figured out right out of the gate that that the uh, the amount of food that a deer takes in changes greatly throughout the, the, the fall months especially. In September and early October, the deer are really putting away, uh, you know, a lot of calories building fat for the winter. Uh, but then when winter rolls around, their caloric intake is really low. Um, for example, I had a pen one year that these, these uh, had a handful of bucks in there. And during the early fall, those bucks were eating two complete five-gallon buckets of feed every day. And in the winter, those, those very same deer in the winter were consuming less than one bucket, probably about two-thirds to three-quarters of one bucket. So their their feed intake was more than cut in half from say late September till early December, and I didn't realize how much they cut back. And you know, there's a lot of things that are promoted in, in the deer hunting world. Uh, you know, outdoor writers like myself are are guilty of promoting some ideas that really aren't true. And it, and one of those is the idea that after the rut, these bucks go on a feeding binge to replace lost calories. Well, that just simply does not happen. They don't replace that. That uh, their appetite doesn't really pick back up until the following spring. They, uh, you know, Mother Nature almost puts them into 
uh, it's, I wouldn't really call it hibernation, but their metabolism slows down where they don't require as many calories. When the when the food is the most scarce in the winter, they just don't require as much. And I'm sure that's Mother Nature's way of, of protecting them. Right. But, you know, just on the nutrition end of things, I, I could probably talk the rest of the night on some of the things I've learned about <laughs> nutrition just through that captive herd of deer. <laughs> right, right. And I know initially we were going to, you know, we were going to talk first, you know, about, you know, hunting the, the, the late rut and then wanting to get into late season. But since you brought up the, the, the feeding aspect of things, I kind of want to jump right into it because I had a few like initial questions just based off of that because, you know, first when you say, you know, that they're, you know, they really slow down their feeding whenever it hits, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, what you said is, is around October ish. And I'm, I'm just kind of thinking, you know, it's interesting that that happens about the same time that hunter pressure happens, you know, the quote unquote October law hits, you know, whether you know, some people believe it, some people don't believe it. It's a law. There's, you know, environmental factors at play. You know, and I think, you know, people not even recognizing that, that their feeding pattern changes at that time as well, not just changing bed to food pattern that they typically are on during the summer, but also their feeding need changes at that time mm-hmm. as well. You know, what do you, how much do you think that, I mean, I guess that that contributes their kind of, um, yeah, I guess how am I trying to say this, like their um, invisibility <laughs> during that, that period of the year or that perceived invisibility during that time of year. Yeah, well, October is the month where the big change happens. In early October, they're still feeding. They're putting away a lot of calories. Um, but by the end of October, you know, they're getting interested in the rut, and feeding takes a backseat to the rut. So the, the, the month of October is when that switch happens, but it, it continues. Their feed intake continues to decline uh, in, in through the month of November and into early December. Gotcha. Okay. And... Uh, not only that, the the nutrients they require changes as well. Like early in the in the summer when they they're growing their racks, uh, they're looking for high protein food sources. That's when you see them out in the alfalfa fields and the soybean fields. Those are high protein food sources that the that they're feeding on then. But then as you get into the fall and those antlers have hardened and they're putting on the fat for the winter, they're they're looking for. Uh, food sources that are higher in carbohydrates and fat that's when they're really hitting the acorns and uh you know they'll get into uh you know the corn and and some of the other crops like that but uh you know the nutrients within their food sources really changes in the fall as well right when do you see like when does the switch i guess flip back on for them to kind of really start you know trying to is there a specific, like, I guess when in watching your herd, was there a specific time period where you could almost set your watch to it where it was like, you know, after the rut, you know, they kind of go through the rut, they, you know, deplete their body, and then all of a sudden, boom, this week kind of signifies the time when they're going to really be back on back on food and having and requiring to, to take in more calories? No, throughout the winter, their uh, intake, is, their food intake is really geared towards the weather. The colder the weather, the, the more they're going to uh, feed and take in. They really don't get back onto that steady appetite, increasing appetite until spring. So it, it's really sporadic throughout the hmm. you know, late fall and winter, and, and it's geared around weather patterns. The colder it gets, then the more they're going to eat. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, because 
I, you always hear, and I, I mean, I'm guilty of this too, is like right after the rut happens, it's like I'm, uh, I'm unfortunately one of those uh, poor individuals who's still holding two, two buck tags or a buck tag in two different states. So I'm looking <laughs> toward late season here or second season here in Pennsylvania to try to, to try to get something done. And you always hear t- people talk about, you know, after the rut, you know, you know, you hit a certain part of the year and um, in late season where you, you, of course, want to focus on food. But, you know, people will talk about the bed to food pattern starting to come back a little bit. And I don't know, as I'm sitting here thinking about what you're saying, I'm thinking it's probably not so much the bed to food pattern that comes back that it's more the food to weather pattern that you probably want to pay attention to. Is that a fair kind of way to look at it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, they are on a feeding pattern now, but it, it's not a pattern that, that people think about where it's, you know, every day this buck is headed to this food source. Uh, there's days, uh, I remember those captive deer, there was days where they hardly ate anything. I mean, those deer that I talked about that were eating two five-gallon buckets early in the fall, there would be days where those deer didn't eat a quarter of one bucket. But then there would be other days, you know, when they would eat a full bucket or so. Um and it was all seemed to be geared around the weather and especially the cold weather temperatures, right. uh, the colder, the temperatures, the, the more, uh, calories they got to take in to stay warm. Right. So, uh, we get, we get these, uh, misconceptions, you know, and I'm like, yeah, a lot of us it passed on by outdoor riders that these deer are going to hit these food sources on a regular basis day after day. And the fact is that some days they are going to hit them a whole lot harder than others. Mm-hmm. There'll be afternoons where those deer will be out there two hours before dark, uh, feeding heavily. And there'll be other afternoons where you hardly see a deer. Right. So, I mean, again, well, let me, let me take a step back for a second and think about, since we're kind of talking about late season here a little bit, and I guess look at it more high level and, from a a broader, I guess, spectrum, you know, so when you, when you start to think about late, late season and say you're, you're me, for example, and you've got a couple buck tags that you're trying to, trying to fill, you know, what are mm-hmm. you focusing on or, or, you know, when you're trying to track down a mature buck that you've had your eye on, say, say you've had some encounters during the course of the fall and maybe you had some summer pictures when you were doing some, some scouting or some glassing or whatever, you know, are there any in, you know, consistencies that you've noticed over the years and how mature bucks behave, uh, behave or their movement, how their movement might shift during this time of year and anything that's unique or out of the ordinary? Well, I, I think, uh, the, the one thing I've noticed is that they will gravitate towards the, the prime food source in their area. Um, I, I know on my property, I, I've always got, uh, you know, standing soybeans and, and other crops growing and, and left stand for them all winter. And, you know, I'll have people think that you have new bucks show up during the rut looking for does. I don't see that whatsoever. What I see is new bucks showing up in the late season. Hmm. When the food gets scarce, that's when those new ones show up. Right. So I think they gravitate towards the, the prime food source within their range. And then you, you've got to find that, and then you've got to uh, hunt the weather patterns. Right. Do you know, knowing that they're going to hit those those kind of prime, you know, or you know what we'll call their, you know, their attractant attractant food sources or the larger food sources, if you will. Do you? Is there any? Is it worthwhile? I guess is what I'm asking to use, you know, kill plots in those instances, or do you feel like those are something that are probably more geared toward uh, being used in in the early part of the fall, or you know, the the during the rut time period? 
Well, they, they certainly have their place. I think uh, a lot of it has to do with pressure, hunting pressure. If you're hunting an area where there's a lot of, of pressure, you're probably not going to get too many bucks to step out into a five-acre field before dark. I mean, it's going to be it's going to take even more extreme weather. Now, if it gets down to where there's several days in a row where the temperatures are below zero, well, then yeah, the, the most nocturnal buck in the woods, he, he's got to take in calories to stay alive. He's going to be out there. Whereas back on a kill plot, you know, it's a little more secluded might not take such extreme conditions to get him on his feet there during daylight hours. Right, right. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, that makes sense. It's like if someone was trying to kill you, I'd be hard-pressed unless you had to to step out into the open. It feels like, you know, the, right. the kill plot seems like, depending on what type of pressure you're experiencing on your property, could be a viable viable option. It seems like the more pressure you have, you know, the more, the better opportunity it might be to use one of those in, in, in high-pressure states or high-pressure properties. Um, yeah, exactly. But, you know, speaking of cover, you know, and just in, in, in safety, you know, I'm just curious if during the late season, if you've, if you've ever seen a specific type of cover in the years that you've, all the years you've spent in the woods that, you know, has been used more often than others, you know, so it's like, you know, when you hit late season, are you seeing, you know, those mature bucks kind of hold up and, you know, let's just say like a, like a, a pine thicket or something like that, or are you seeing them holding up more in like, you know, a, a, something that's, you know, four or five foot tall and just super brushy, you know, what type of, what type of habitat are you seeing them most often take cover during that time of the year? Well, there's one thing that, that trumps the type of cover, and, and you know, but your buck typically will stick cover. But the one thing that trumps that is human intrusion, the lack of human intrusion. A mature buck, he would rather bed in a wide open woods with no human intrusion than he would a, a thicket that's got hunters stomping through it. And it doesn't have to be intense pressure. I mean, he wants a place where he's never going to be disturbed during daylight hours. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's that freedom of human intrusion that makes for good bedding cover more than how thick it is or, or what kind of cover it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I mean, people, just what you said, people always kind of associate, you know, cover with how how thick it is. You know, and if people may have more, you know, and better encounters if they kind of change their mindset and think about cover in the terms of their, their own intrusion, right? It's like, to your point, I was just hunting this buck. I was hunting a small piece of uh, public property the other day, and this buck was bedded out in the middle of that public swamp without any cover, you know, and I just kind of walked, uh-huh. walked up on him. Uh, I didn't notice him until, you know, it was too late to, to, to really do anything about it. I, it was, you know, super dry out, super crunchy, and he saw me. He bounded away a few, you know, probably 20, 30 yards and stopped because I don't think he was sure what he had seen, and so he just kind of stopped and looked at me for a couple minutes, then he bounded off on, on his you know, on his merry way. And as I'm walking to my stand, I'm thinking to myself, I was like, I mean, I cannot believe that. It's like, I would have never thought I would have found a bedded buck laying right where I found him. You know what I mean? It's like, cause there was all this thick cover that was, that's mm-hmm. kind of on the fringe of this along this stream. But that stream is also adjacent to a shooting club. So there's always mm-hmm. people over there shooting, you know, walking around and stuff like that. And so that was probably just a place that he just never gets bothered until I walk through, of course. <laughs> You know? Yeah, but uh, it's that freedom of human intrusion that every mature buck wants. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I think as I get older too, I want less human intrusion, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, man. How 
you know, during the late season, I know during, you know, the summer we all, you know, get giddy about our, our velvet buck pictures and, you know, and during the, uh, you know, when fall hits, we get excited about the bucks that are sticking around that, you know, stuck around or, or have returned after the, after the shift happens there in the, uh, in the early fall. So I'm just curious in how you're using your cameras during, during the, you know, the later part of the season here. Well, I've, I've actually, cameras, uh, you know, a lot of times the bucks, from what I've noticed, about 50% of the bucks will shift from a summer range to a different fall range. About half of them will stay where they summer, and the other half will move. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for me, the, the best bucks I was watching last summer moved, and... Uh, but, but past trail camera history shows me that the best buck that I was watching last year, he, he moves back to his summer range early, like in January. So I'm hoping he comes back before the season's over. So I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm focusing my cameras around prime food sources. And I'm checking them more, as the season winds down, I'm checking them a little more frequently than I have earlier just so that I can be on top of things as they happen. If a new buck starts hitting a food source, I want to know about it. You know, now, two weeks from now, gives me the best chance to kill him. So I'm checking those cameras around those prime food sources about once a week Mm -hmm. just to kind of stay on top of things. Right. And how is that different for you from earlier in the year? Are you checking them less frequently early in the year? Yeah, early in the year, I'm checking them about once a month or, or Sometimes I'll even go six or eight weeks. As the season winds down, that's when I start checking them more frequently. Then when the season's over, I pretty much leave the cameras out and don't bother them at all until spring when bucks have pretty much shed their antlers. So, you know, as as, as the season winds down, I want to be on top of things so I still have a chance to capitalize on anything I see. Right. You know, I'm, you know, I'm curious. I wanted to ask you this this question. There's two things that I really kind of wanted to ask you. One's about late rut, and one was, you know, really specifically during this late, you know, late season. You know, because we always hear, you know, especially when you get into rut, you know, it's uh, you can find as much or have as much information on a deer as you possibly can. And uh, rut kind of hits, and you know, I, I know you've, you know, killed plenty of big bucks in October and it seems like the guys who can get on a deer and pattern a deer, you know, a lot of times will really try to get the job done in October before they really start expanding their, their, their territory or their cruising range. Right. Um, so I'm just curious to you and, and, and rut seems to be about timing. It's like you put your time in the stand and you, you know, a deer might be in the area and you get in the right spot and it, timing is kind of plays a really important role in that. And so I'm just curious to see, you know, your perspective, if, you know, timing seems to be everything during the rut to, to, for some folks, you know, is it just as important in late season or is it more about that kind of that, I guess that earlier season mindset of really starting to try to pattern that deer and understanding what his needs and, and, and how those might change day to day, especially when you were just talking about the, you know, the weather patterns really, you know, helping to drive their, their feeding patterns. Well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, probably the, the best time to kill a specific mature buck is during the late season. That probably comes as a shock for a lot of people to hear me say that. But, uh, you know, in, in the early season, a, a buck has so many options as far as feeding and hiding. 
um, you know, covers everywhere, foods everywhere. And, and then during the rut, trying to pattern an individual buck, he's covering so many miles, literally miles, in search of does and chasing does, at least a lot of bucks are, that uh, for you to cross paths with him takes a, a good bit of luck. But, but during the late season, undisturbed cover is scarce. Prime food sources are scarce. And if you can have both of those ingredients, and, and then the final ingredient is bad weather. If you know where a buck can bed safely and, and you know where he can feed on a prime food source close to it, and then you get a, a, a spell of really bad weather that lasts several days, that is the time, that is the best time and the best situation to kill a, a specific big buck on purpose. <laughs> nice. And that's usually those bad weather days, too, or those days where uh, a lot of folks don't want to go out. You know what I mean? They want to, yeah. They want to stay in the nice, comfy, warm, warm house instead of sitting in a tree somewhere. You know. Yeah, and I'm talking brutal weather. I mean, I'm talking it's so cold out there that you got you know ice freezing to your face. <laughs> the, the, the colder, the better. I mean, if it's zero, then then you're talking. Right. Because that buck is going to be on his feet, and he is going to be feeding. Yeah, it's a, it's a that was actually the next question I wanted to ask you. You know, it's you know whether this time of year is is fickle you know, to, say, to say the least and you just said you know the colder the better but is there anything that you like in addition to the cold like do you like a little bit of precip do you like a certain type of you know a certain speed of wind that you found has been kind of you know most beneficial during this time of year well having some snow cover on is definitely beneficial if it, the ideal conditions would be you know say three to six inches of snow on the ground and temperatures that are Zero or below at night, and maybe in the teens is a high in the day. Um, brutal cold, where, where your cars and trucks aren't starting, and you know everything's froze up. That's right. the kind of condition every mature buck, no matter how nocturnal he was during the rut, he's going to be on his feet before dark. Not only that, but then you got a uh, you got a uh, a self made uh, deep freezer in the back of your truck whenever you when you toss him in there too, right? Don't have to worry about. Yeah, that. there you go. <laughs> it's no no need to yeah. rush to get the hide off. That's for sure. In the, uh, he's not going to spoil. No, <laughs> that's an understatement there. Um, so I'm curious. You know, we were talking about them getting on their feet. You know, looking for food. Weather as nasty as we can possibly get is really what we're you know what we're looking for. You know, I'm just curious because I know you do as you mentioned with your with your uh, with your outdoor company and so forth you know the the, the seed and the the mineral and all the, the stuff you've been doing with that you know just want to get your perspective and all the consulting you do as well you know if you could only plant one food plot you know for late season what would it be if you could only have one one crop in that you were like this is going to be the spot where I'm going to kill a, a a magnum you know what would that food be oh this is the easiest question I've ever had soybeans <laughs> hands down no doubt about it there's not even a close second soybeans really yeah I'm, yeah i we uh i i i was contemplating putting some soybeans on my dad's property next year i didn't put any on this year i've never planted soybeans is there any is there any kind of trick to it because you know i just i usually go with things that i know i can grow pretty easily um i did plant one type of soybean i guess it was three years ago um i had a hard time getting it in the ground just because i was waiting for the temperature to get to the right kind of envelope or the right, you know, the right range. And then we had a super wet spring. So I was getting it in kind of late. Is there any, any, I guess, tricks to the trade for planting soybeans for success? Well, 
a couple of things. First of all, forget forage soybeans. If you're, we're talking about late season, and we're talking about the deer hitting the grain, not the leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, forget forage soybeans. They're not going to do you any good. Most forage soybeans are a longer growing season bean that uh, I planted them on my farm. I don't know six, seven years, uh, just because I I followed the hype that I'd heard. And it's a waste of plot space for a guy in the northern region of the country. They they probably got their their place in southern states. I'm not going to mm-hmm. knock them down there. But when it comes to, to guys, say, from Kentucky north, um, you need to be planting real-world soybeans, I believe. But, right. Um, they're, they're higher in, uh, in oil or fat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the pods are shatter-resistant. But, uh, you, you know, that is the ticket. Uh, soybeans are very easy to grow. They're, they're one of the easiest plots you'll ever grow. You can throw soybeans out on the bare dirt. You don't even have to cover them. If you get a rain on them, they're going to sprout and grow. But, uh, you know, the, the key really is, uh, is browse pressure on a small plot. The deer will just wipe them out. So you need a fairly good sized plot or you need to fence that plot or do something to keep the deer out of it. Um, but, you know, once they're established, uh, then you got to control the weeds. If uh, a lot of soybeans are Roundup ready, which means you can spray Roundup right over the top of them. It won't hurt the soybeans whatsoever, but it'll kill the weeds. It makes it very easy to control the weeds in your pot. Um, but there's a lot of different methods for planting them. You can use a planter or a drill, or you can just broadcast them. Yeah, that was that was what I was curious about, because I don't have any, you know, big equipment. I basically have a... An ATV with a little disc on it is what I usually use on on this piece. I do have one other farm that's you know in the family that I do I do help out with some that uh we have a small tractor and a disc and stuff like that, but we don't have any, have a drill or anything like that. So I'd probably just be mainly broadcast. And I mean, do you need to increase the your broadcast rate your or your seed rate to whenever you're doing it that way? Yeah, it won't hurt to a little, but I mean, fifty pounds is of soybeans per acre is a good rate maybe if you're broadcasting it up that to 60 but and the reason for it is you're probably going to get some seed too deep and some too shallow uh, although if if it rains it, it's almost impossible to have them too shallow if they get a good rain on them and, and the moisture's there right and you so, uh i'm sorry go ahead well, well soybeans got a soybean plant has a unique ability to to utilize the space it's given. So if they're planted a little bit heavy, the beans um, probably won't, each plant won't get quite as tall or quite as bushy, but if they're planted a little bit light, you know, they'll get taller and bush out more. So they kind of got a unique ability to fill in the space that they're given. Right. Now you were mentioning just you know, the, the browse pressure. Um, and that was one of the things I'm, you know, was thinking about just because yeah, I don't have a ton of, ton of space on this particular uh, piece of land so what, what what would you say is your kind of your minimum you know as far as you know size of plot for for soybeans well yeah, that's pretty tough to say because it's it's based on deer density and and the other food sources available where i'm at i'm in an area with you know heavy agriculture where i've got soybean fields that are hundreds of acres all around me uh it takes some pressure off my plots i'm able to plant all right, folks, sorry about that. We had a little technical difficulty here, but we have Don back on. So, John, I've been jabbering here, man. I want to give you a chance here to ask some questions. I think you have a question you want to want to chime in with. Yes, yes, yes. What's happening, Don? How are you, bud? Good, Don. How about you? 
Good, good. Hey, so my question for you, one of many, is um, late season. This is something that I've struggled with for years and years, and um, I don't know everything there is to know, so I'm going to somebody who I know that knows more than me, and I'll pick your brain. You get those situations in late season. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you get in those situations in late season, and you know it's uh, it's five ten degrees outside, and I'm sitting on beans that night. And my buddy, he goes to um, he goes to his turnips and he goes to his radishes and oats plot. And I'm like, I haven't seen a deer all night. And he and he he's texting me and he's like, I'm absolutely covered up in deer tonight. So the next day, nothing has changed whatsoever. The wind's still the same. The barometric pressure's the same. We're very similar to a moon phase. Temperatures, everything's the same. So I say, screw it. I'm going to go to turnips and oats tonight and see what happens. And then I text my buddy and he says, yeah, I moved over to beans and I am absolutely covered up today. And I haven't seen a deer one. What, what advice or what tips would you give for picking the right food source in those late season conditions? Well, it's like uh, proper a whole lot more deer and a whole lot less pressure than the other one. Is that the case? Or? No. I mean, is there is there kind of a, a general, and, and, and I get it, there's always going to be conditions that warrant um, maybe there was a late shotgun season that came through an area or something like that, but just overall, if you have your, you know, if you're going out to a certain food source, that has equal pressure on or on two different food sources. Is there one that you will pick over the other for different conditions in the late season? And maybe it is a slight temperature change or more sun or something like that. If the temperatures are above normal for that time of year, I will hit greens. If they're below normal for that time of year, I'll hit grains, grains and greens, a, a, well-managed property will have both, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's pretty much my general rule. If it's it's warmer than normal, I hit the greens. Colder than normal, I hit the grains. Gotcha. Yeah. So does, that answers that pretty pretty simple rule of thumb answer right there. There you go. So John, yeah. when you got to put on sunscreen, you're going to go to the greens. Go to, I'll go <laughs> yeah. to the greens. Yep. <laughs> exactly. When and I'm not going to guarantee that's going to work. Time that's the sure, general rule sure. that I follow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it gives a it gives a starting point, you know. And 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 like I said, that's one of the things that I've struggled with in the past. Is you know, my heart tells me, yeah, when it's when the sun's out and it's a little warmer, go to greens. When it's really really cold, uh, go to beans or corn. Um, but then I've had it kind of backfire and flip flop on me, you know, before. And I and then it co- you know it, it leaves you questioning your judgment. And you're like, well, maybe I don't have this figured out. Man, oh, just get a little bit closer each year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So you know, can I, I know that we're you know focusing on some some food plot stuff here, um, you know, and, and what you know what uh, you know what, what we should be sitting over, you know, when, during you know what type of weather and so forth. But you know, can setting up on an area where there's a lot of browse 
you know, be effective, you know, or as effective as hunting over a traditional plot, you know, and if so, what type of browse would you really be kind of looking for? Say you're on a piece of property that doesn't have a food plot or doesn't have ag and you still want to hunt late season and maybe, you know, there's a buck close by there, you know, what type of natural browse would you be looking for to set up on? Well, I mean, that's a good question. It's, uh, you want that second growth, um, Get, get away from the uh, the mature timber. Get out on the edges and the, the open meadows where you know shrubs and briars, blackberry briars, are a great browse for deer. Believe it or not, um, but those smaller saplings and bushes uh, that have the smaller, more tender uh, branches that the deer can eat on. I mean, there's like literally hundreds of different plants that a deer will browse on. Some, of course, preferred more than others, but uh, I mean, there's so many that, that they lie. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Right, so... Pinch points and things like that. Right. So you're, you're saying it's like, it's a combination of, you know, what the browse that's available and what the terrain features are, are doing in terms of how they're funneling deer. It's kind of going back to that type of approach, which is, you know, very reminiscent of earlier, earlier in the year to a degree, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear saws. Hardcore deer hunters need hardcore tools. Do yourself a favor and check out Wicked Tree Gear, the toughest hand saws and pull saws on earth. You buy it once, you buy it for life, backed by a lifetime guarantee. Right now, if you use the promo code TRUTH, you'll save 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. So head over to wickedtreegear.com and get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. So I want to shift gears a little bit here. You know, we've been covering some late season stuff, you know, and I want to get into some of the, the, the late rut stuff because, you know, and we'll get to that in a second because you really kind of piqued my interest with some stuff that I heard you, you know, talk about and write about at one point, but... You know, I know we've talked, you know, or mentioned, you know, you've been in the outdoor industry a long time in a lot of different capacities, um, you know, so I'm just curious whenever I meet folks and get a chance to talk to folks who have been doing it a long time, what their opinion is or their perspective is on how the hunting industry and hunting in general has changed over the years for the good or for the or detriment, you know, so I'm just curious to you, your opinion, like, well, how have you seen things change and, you know, what was good and what is bad, I guess. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's an interesting question. It's a loaded one, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it, it's definitely changed. Uh, there, there's plenty of things that I like, uh, plenty of changes I like, and there's, there's some I don't. I guess, uh, you, you know, the technology that's come along has been game-changing. Uh, you know, I remember the day when something like a trail camera would have just wouldn't even have been imaginable let alone a possibility. Um, personally, I like trail cameras. I mean, I have probably close to 50 of them. And, 
they've definitely helped me kill some bucks that I probably would not have killed without them. Um, it, it, what I like about them is they expand my season. You know, instead of waiting for October 1st to, to be able to sit in a tree, I'm hitting the woods July 1st putting out cameras. And, and I really like that because uh, uh, basically my only time that I'm not in the woods is early in, or late spring when it finally greens up from then until July, about the 1st of July is about the only time I'm not spending much time in the woods all year. And then, you know, I'm putting them trail cameras out and uh, it really expands my season, makes it more enjoyable. Um, you know, I kind of, I've been at it long enough that I remember when there was no outdoor TV <laughs> and that came along and it seemed to run through a cycle uh, I mean, when it was uh, really popular, there was, I don't know, multiple networks with nothing but hunting shows. And, you know, it seemed like every Tom, Dick, and Harry that ever shot a two-year-old buck at a TV show, <laughs> uh, you, you could w- walk into a, a, a trade show, and, and they were all walking around wanting to hand out their uh, media kits looking for sponsorships. And and at the same time, the, the, the companies in the outdoor industry were just handing them products product right and left anybody come along and and that's kind of changed uh you know i used to watch a lot of outdoor tv and i can't even it's been years since i've watched any of it so i, I think there's a lot of other people that have kind of followed that that same pattern um good bad or otherwise i don't know um you know i don't know it's uh there's there's some of the technology that that bothers me some um I, Especially, you know, things like the cell cams. I mean, and, and some of these odor-killing machines, for lack of a better word. Um, I mean, where's the challenge? Are we, are we trying to take all the challenge out of deer hunting? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, our weapons, um, they just become more efficient. Uh, we as hunters become more proficient. Oh, where's it end? Uh, and, and yet... With all these things out there, there's still a lot of hunters that uh, have a hard time filling their tags. So, you know, I don't know. But, but there was good hunters uh, before we had all this technology, and, and there's good hunters today. And uh, there was bad hunters back then. There's bad hunters today. So, yeah, you know, I got mixed feelings on it. It is what it is. Uh, yeah. I, I can't complain too much when I'm a guy that's out there running 50 trail cameras. How can I say too much about it, you know? So, uh, it basically it's how you use it. Um, I would like to see. I guess if there's one one big complaint that I have with the, the hunting industry today is it's a lack of good moral uh, role models, uh, guys that are preaching ethics. Um, it's not just about the kill. It's not just about how many big bucks a guy can hang up, but but how you go about it and what you get back to the sport. I mean, I see so many takers that are. Uh, um, you know, they're, they're trying to reap the rewards of fame through hunting and yet they're never willing to give anything back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, you know, I kind of cherish the whitetail as a species, but also the individuals. I mean, I, every deer that I shoot, I, I want it to get close so I can make a good humane kill. I don't want to be lobbing arrows at 80 yards and thinking can I really accomplish for something to me it's a close range sport and the closer you get the better but that doesn't really give me the right to to force my views onto another bow hunter but i i'd just like to see 
you know, more role models that are pushing ethics and, and conservation mm-hmm. instead of me, me, me. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you there. And that's a, that was why I wanted to ask you the question because it's, you know, I've, I've watched and listened to you from afar. And I, if I know one thing at all from, from listening to you is, is uh, your, your candor is, uh, is, is well known um, and you, you, you speak honestly. And that's why I kind of wanted to ask you the question because I know I get an honest answer. So I have a follow up to that because I think you started touching okay. on it a little bit. Um, and that is, you know, do you think you mentioned the ethics aspect of it and, you know, would like to see more hunters give back and, you know, be more concerned with the conservation angle of it as opposed to, you know, getting hunting famous, if you will. Um, you know, how do you think hunters overall are faring in, you know, being, I guess, responsible for the type of image that we're portraying to the masses? Well, we are totally responsible for it. The, the, the sad thing is that, that we've lacked role models in recent years for, for these younger hunters. And, you know, the whack them, stack them, if it's brown, it's down gang has kind of grabbed a hold of the youth. And, and, and that's the approach a lot of them take. And, and they just lack true conservationists as role models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if that answers your question. And if, I mean, I, I'm not trying to duck any questions. No, no. If I, if I didn't answer it, go ahead and, and re-ask <laughs> it. I'll be glad to answer it. <laughs> no, no, you, answer, you answered it just fine. I mean, that was kind of what I was, you know, w- was getting at. It was just, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion. You know, John and I have had this conversation. I know there's other, you know, guys with, you know, much more well-known podcasts than than than, than I have um, you know, that talk about these things as well. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have is how we portray ourselves to not just other hunters, but to the non-hunting public, um, because we are our best keeper. You know what I mean? We are our brother's keeper. You know, to a degree where it's um, we're the ones who are going to be responsible for how we're viewed, ultimately how our group is viewed, ultimately how our sport is viewed, and then also, you know, what type of privileges we have or don't have going forward. You know, there's a we're going to have a lot to do with that, and it's going to be how we approach. To your point if we have the right people that are, you know, paving the way through, you know, hunting ethically and morally and making good choices and hard choices when hard choices are needed to be made when they're the right ones, um, which is exactly what you were saying, which is what I was kind of getting at. I know John has a follow-up question. So John, did you have uh, something you want to chime in with? Well, just what we were saying as far as, um, you know, we can be our own worst enemy sometime. I mean, I've always said, I'll never apologize for being a hunter to the non-hunters, but at the same time, I, I do make efforts to not give them any ammunition either. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that's comes with being a good steward of the, of the sport. And I think that's something we can all do. But, um, but my, my comment was, you know, thinking about us, uh, as hunters and, and like Don was saying, you know, wanting to get close to the animals and having respect for the animals, um, there was definitely a period where, you know, as a hunter that if I did not kill a buck, um, it really bothered me. It, like it bothered me a whole lot. And, and I let it get to me almost to the point where it was becoming too much. Like I was putting too much pressure on myself and it wasn't being, it, you know, it wasn't fun. Um, fortunately, I matured more and I grew up and, and, and that kind of went away. 
and most recently I was down in South Texas, Don. Uh, I've never hunted um, I've never hunted Texas before and I went way 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 down there on a no fence uh, ranch. Um, I, I guess you uh, no fence farm, but I mean down there they call them ranches, but humongous humongous property. The highest fence that I saw was like three and a half four foot tall. And I'm hunting these gas line uh, right-of-ways that have been cut into this brush. And, you know, for anybody listening, you know, if you've been to Texas, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, it's like a cedar tree crossbred with multiflora rose crossbred with uh, honeysuckle. I mean, just impenetrable type brush. And so they've got all these right-of-ways cut in. I can't, got on the ground no blind, no decoys, nothing like that. I just crouched down on the ground with my bow and a set of rattling horns and rattled this buck into 27 yards, but he was right behind one of these bushes. And, and I, you know, it's one of those deals with a 30, 30 brush gun probably wouldn't have been a problem. Um, with a bow and arrow, it's not something I was a shot I was willing to take. And even five minutes after 20 minutes after three days afterwards, I still have the same feeling of, man, that was an absolute blast. I can't wait to go back there and do that again. And the revelation was, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would have been, well, that was the worst hunt of my life because I didn't, you know, I didn't get to release an arrow. That's the best hunt I've ever had in my life. And I didn't shoot anything. You know what I mean? So um, it's one of those things where, you know, I even, I even told my, my wife, I said, does this mean I'm an adult now? Like, am I starting to grow up? You know, am I starting to, am I starting to turn a leaf over to, am I becoming one of those guys? And it's one of those guys that I have aspired to be. And I wanted it to be honest and genuine and authentic, you know? Well, the, the biggest issue I see, it's, I've already said it, but it goes back to role models. Whenever I was younger, I looked up to guys like Gene and Barry Wentzel, uh, Roger Rothar. And, uh, you know, those guys, they were big buck killers, but they, they also preached ethics. Uh, a gentleman named Alan Foster had a big impact on me because uh, he was a local guy that I actually worked with. But, uh, you know, he wrote for North American Whitetail for back in the late 80s and 90s, but he, he was always preaching ethics. And, you know, I was really blessed to that my role models were very ethical hunters. And uh, today... I'd look around and who these kids have to look up to. Um, it's all about, uh, and I'm probably guilty to some degree myself, but people think that I'm just, uh, you know, it's all big bucks and that's all I care about. But the fact is, I I think I've taken seven different hunters hunting on my property this year and uh, four of them have killed bucks on my property. You know, I have not killed a buck myself. So there's a lot that, that people don't realize about me. And, and one of the things is, is that I try to get back to the sport instead of just being a taker. And uh, not just to, to individual hunters, but to the sport overall, I try to be a role model for these younger kids, uh, especially in my latest book that I wrote. Uh, it's been, uh, it came out in 2012, so it's been a few years now. But one of the driving forces behind that book was I wanted that book to be something that a young kid that's, that's getting into bow hunting could read. And, uh, you know, there's some morals and some ethics there. It's not just about killing big bucks, which I love to do as much as anybody that, that 
the, the hunt for big bucks is what drives me. It's what gets me out of bed every day. But, but how I do it's important too. It's not just, uh, the end result, um, you know, justifies the means. Mm-hmm. It's, I want to do it not just legally, but ethically as well. And, uh, do it as if the whole world were sitting there watching over my shoulder and be proud of how I did it. Mm-hmm. I know back in 2004, I shot my biggest buck ever, scored 214 inches, and a lot of people don't realize it, but I passed up three opportunities to shoot that buck before the day I shot him from three different tree stands mm-hmm. um, on, on three different days just because it wasn't an ethical shot. One time I had the buck at 20 yards, but there was just the brush was too thick. Another time it was 30 yards. And the buck was quartering towards me and alert. And it just shots I refused to take. And, and a lot of guys would be swinging arrows. And, you know, I, I just think that as the, my biggest complaint with the hunting industry in, in the in my lifetime is that we went from having those good role models of true conservationists to, to basically a bunch of killmongers, egomaniacs that are beating their chest because they did something. Half the time they did it unethically. Mm-hmm. and uh we've made heroes out of them and it's pretty disgusting really yeah no i agree i mean you know I, i'm fortunate i guess you know i grew up i you know this is kind of maybe maybe odd sounding just you know being a person who grew up in pennsylvania with the hunting heritage of this that this state has and you know hunting from the time that i can that i can remember and being outside since the time i can remember but i don't ever recall watching outdoor television ever until i was older you know, I, you know, when uh-huh. I was growing up, I didn't, well, you didn't have TV where I grew up for a lot of, like for a lot of my, my life growing up with my, with my dad, we had rabbit ears and that was about it. Cause there wasn't a whole lot of, a whole lot of TV in that neck of the woods. But, um, you know, I grew up with hunting with my dad and that was the yep. one thing that I feel fortunate for is because my dad, you know, not everyone is this lucky, but that was always his approach to hunting was, you know, it wasn't all it wasn't about what you were going to put in the back of your truck it was about the ex, truly the experience um you know i was just telling a story to my buddy yesterday as we were driving because you know we would go to hunting camp with my uncle or my two uncles you know when i was a kid and they would sometimes ride my dad because they would say he has the same box of shells he's had for 25 years because he refuses to pull the trigger <laughs> you know what i mean which was the kind yeah. of the running joke and I, I didn't really understand it until i got older and what it was was that he didn't, it wasn't, he didn't care if he killed anything. That wasn't his, that wasn't his reward. Um, and I never got it until I got older and it really dawned on me because I, I, you know, I passed some deer here and there and stuff like that. And I was in Ohio hunting this year and I had opening the first morning that I hunted on that rut trip. I had a shooter walk under my stand, but there was a different one that I had a camera picture of that. I knew that that was the guy I wanted to hunt. And he walked five yards underneath me and he turned broadside at about 12 yards and I drew back on him because I didn't know which deer he was because it was just the break of light and once I figured out he wasn't the one I was you know looking for you know I let him get out in front of me a little ways till he turned his head back or you know away from me and I, I drew down and I texted my dad and said just passed a shooter at 12 yards you know and my dad said mm-hmm. he said good job he's like it's all about the experience and that was all he said to me yep. and that was it and that was when it kind of dawned on me that you know I think he probably felt like he did his job at, in that moment. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I should probably back up a little bit because I'm not saying that everybody in the hunting industry today is a killmonger and unethical or anything like that. But what I'm saying is, you know, who is today's Fred Bear? If you had to pick one person in the entire hunting industry that preached 
that preaches ethics. Who is it today? Right. The only that, guy... that doesn't mean that they're doing things wrong or they're doing things illegal. It's just that, that we don't have, you know, that ethical, I don't know what you call it, spokesperson for the industry. It's just like, it seems like it's a big void that's not there today, and it was when I was younger. Yeah, I think, in my opinion, John, I'd be curious to see you know, if, if you have a different opinion. I feel like we have guys in different areas that are, are, could be those guys, but the, the media and the coverage, coverage might not be the right word, but the media of the outdoor industry now is so fragmented that no one becomes that beacon, right? So whenever Fred Bear was kind of that beacon, just using Fred Bear as an example, um, you know, it was, he, of course, Fred Bear Archery, right? He was Fred Bear, everything that came along with it. And it was really right. easy to identify mm-hmm. and say, that's the guy, right? Because you weren't here, you may not hear a bunch from, you know, from 30, 40 other people. You know, there might have been three or four other stalwarts, giants of the industry, and they all ha- kind of had, you know, right. you could maybe say Will Primos too, you know, right? it's a couple of those names, right? And now today, it's like when you look, like when I think of conservation, it's like I think of a guy like Shane Mahoney where it's like if you're not really into conservation and just a normal average everyday hunter, you probably don't don't know who Shane Mahoney is. You know what I mean? Um, Or Uh Steve Ranella is another great example. But you have how many other media platforms and companies who are pumping out messages aside from Steve Ranella that he has to compete with to have that honest Mm -hmm. voice of conservation, right? And so I totally get what you're saying. I think there's a lack of it, but then I also think that those that we do have just have to fight, have to fight so hard to have their voice heard that they're often drowned out. John, I'm not sure, you know, what your thoughts are on that. No, I think, uh, I think, I think you make a valid point. I mean, whether it's social media, um, television, you know, uh, there's so many different sources and there's, um, there's so many more people that are in the limelight, so to speak, and it may be a little light. It may be a big, uh, it may be be a big spotlight or a you know a moon you know a lighthouse or something. But there's there's so many different people in there that I think the Fred Bears of the world uh, kind of get drowned out quite a bit. Um, so I I think that's that you know that can be, you know it, it I go back and forth. You know I mean what I do for a living is marketing, right? So. Um, I'm always, you know, I make a living for, you know, promoting products. Um, I like to think that I'm promoting good products and, but I'm, I'm promoting products, uh, to, to hunters. And so I might be part of the problem, you know, um, I'm taking up space on social media and, and television and things like that, promoting these products of the product of sport and it's drowning out the the light of, uh, of the Fred bears of the world. But Don makes a very, I mean, a seriously, uh, valid point is who is the Fred bear, um, in today's day and age. I think, uh, the closest thing we have to it is maybe some of the people doing the public land awareness. Um, you know, that's probably the closest thing that's getting the media recognition that it deserves. And we all know a couple of guys, uh, that are in our wheelhouse or, you know, they're in our contact list and our phone, that these are just genuinely good dudes that really have a passion for the, for the sport and for whitetails uh, and for the outdoors uh, as a whole. And um, you know, they donate their time and they're teaching the youth and getting the youth involved, but nobody knows their name. And it's uh yeah, it's kind of a shame. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I'm probably as guilty as anyone. Uh, there, there's a lot of guys just like me that uh, they love the outdoors and they're trying to make a living at it. So, mm-hmm. you know, as we try to to make a living, we're we're doing things, we're promoting products. Um, but but I think we can do those things while also promoting ethics. Sure. Sometimes we probably all fail at it. I mean, I, I'm far from perfect. I, I hope it didn't. I hope my little rant didn't come off like me thinking that uh, I'm better than than the next guy because well, there's a, there's plenty of good people in the hunting industry. That that was not my point at all. But we, we a true conservationist, you know, someone that cares more about the the game we pursue than killing it. Those those guys are just lacking, um, and I think. Uh, you know, our, our youth really need some role models like that. So there, there might be an opportunity there. You know, if someone's listening, they want to get into the hunting industry. Why not be that guy that's the role model and that stands up for conservation instead of the guy that's uh, running around the country trying to shoot giant bucks and look at me? Uh, there, there may yeah. be a place for someone like that in the hunting industry. Well, and and, and I mentioned this not, and, and I'll, I'll preface it, I'm legitimately not trying to toot my own horn. When I moved to Iowa, one of the first things I I did was reach out to the local DNR and I wanted to become a hunter safety instructor. And uh, when I called, they were like, Oh my gosh, are you serious? Like we seriously, we need new blood. Um, You know, we've got some older guys that have been doing it a long time. And, and one of their comments was, Hey, you're involved in the outdoor industry. Um, the kids might relate to you because they might've seen your products or they might've seen you, your hunt somewhere or something like that, you know, on social media or Facebook or whatever. So I volunteered to do that, but my purpose and, and as much as I don't want to even talk about doing it because I didn't do it to get a pat on the back, but for sake of this conversation, I'm bringing it up. Uh, anybody listening, um, you know, Don makes a good point, and it was one of the things I wanted to do was participate uh, in those hunter safety classes to try to get our youth involved. And uh, one of the things that I always talk about outside of safety is I always mention uh, the part that we kind of touched on as far as promote, you know, promote yourself and what you're doing. Don't give the don't give the antis uh, any ammunition. Uh, show ethics, show respect for the animal. Um, I, I always make a comment about I don't ever want to see any more dead deer in the back of pickup trucks with a bunch of crushed up beer cans in the background. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. uh, if you're going to do a grip and grin hero photo, show some respect to the animal and try to take I the best photo you can. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, Don, I think to your point, I'd say I don't think, you know, definitely not taking it as you know, you considering that we're, you know, the three of us or any one of us is any better than, than anybody else. As you, as you mentioned, it's like, we're all, we're all far from perfect. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's just the ability to recognize that and that just knowing that whenever you have a, an audience or you're in a position of influence, whatever, whatever scale of influence that might be, you know, there's a responsibility that comes with it, you know? Um, yep. and, uh, it's, you know, it's always kind of think of it, you know, in the sense of, you know, whatever I'm doing, would I go tell my grandma or my dad, you know what I mean? It's like, if I did something in the hunting woods or whatever, it's like, would I go tell my dad and would he, would he give me an attaboy, you know? And if he wouldn't, then, yep. 
it's probably not something I would do, you know? Um, All right. And so I don't think, you know, to John, to your point, it's not like we don't not, we're not suggesting everyone needs to go run out and volunteer 40 hours a week to their, you know, closest, you know, outdoor nonprofit, but it's like, just do what you can. And some people can do more than others. And that's great. And if you can't, then just whenever you talk about it and people ask you to have a discussion about it, you just represent it the best way you possibly can. And that's all we can ask, you know, um, exactly. you know, and that's. But so I, I digress. I, I do appreciate that part of the conversation, Don, because I, uh, I, I, I knew I could get some, you know, really what I like to call straight talk out of you, which was which was awesome because it really kind of got me thinking. Um, but I do want to yeah. quickly I do want to change it back to back to some deer hunting tactics here um, in in, in uh, I guess in the spirit of you know, hunting stewardship and so forth. Um, you know, talk about some, some hunting tactics, tactics and see if we can help some folks out with some, uh, late rut information. But I was reading your blog, uh, I guess it was like two weeks ago. I was on there cruising around and, uh, I know that there was a spot in October that you had located that you, that you had mentioned. And I think what the words you used was it just had that big buck feel. And you were, and I think you even mentioned in that article that you weren't, it wasn't like you could put your finger on anything particularly about it where you were like, Oh, it's because it has, it's on the edge. There's a, there's a defined edge there. That's, you know, between a, or it's a transition area with cover, transition cover, right. Or something like that. It wasn't anything that like mm-hmm. obvious. So I guess what I want to ask is what is it about certain spots that don't have, you know, what you would consider quote unquote to be like the perfect place, right. For, to be a big buck place, but you just kind of get that sixth sense that tells you, you found a place that is likely holding a mature buck. What is the, like the one thing about those areas that you've kind of found that are consistent? Is there like, is there like, you know, it's, it's way away from pressure. Is it overlooked? Does it have a certain terrain feature? Is there anything that you, in your mind, you can kind of say, this is kind of what I see and what I'll kind of look for in those scenarios. Well, it's almost like, and I know exactly what blog you're talking about, and I think I described it almost as a sixth sense. Whenever you stumble upon one of them spots, it's like you just get excited. I mean, I hung that stand, and it wasn't even November yet, but uh, I guess I was so excited I wanted to stay in the stand and just stay there until November because I knew there was going to be a big buck in front of that stand. and. I, I think there's a lot of factors. I, experience plays a big role in it, you know, just knowing where you've seen big bucks in the past. And and I always tried to replicate whatever, whenever I had a big buck encounter, you know, I tried to replicate that in other locations. But uh, a, a couple of things. One is uh, a spot that's overlooked. Um, but then... You know, there's a lot of those little spots that are overlooked that don't have big bucks in them, but the type of cover, I, I really like grown up, old grown up cattle pastures where there hasn't been cattle for a few years, but they're still, it's grown up in weeds and briars and saplings, but on the ground, there's still some grass. You know, it's not, it's not down to bare dirt yet. There's still some of that grass that the cattle used to graze on is down there because the deer just absolutely love them. And if you can find a spot like that that's overlooked and nobody is is putting any pressure whatsoever on, and uh, I mean access to it, if uh, if you know how how the, the deer are limited and how they can come and go, you know they're not just coming from 
20 different directions and leaving in 20 different directions. If, if their, uh, entrance and exit from that spot is, is, uh, limited, that just makes it all the better. And this spot had all, all those things. And believe it or not, I hung that stand and I never did go back and hunt it. But, uh, um, now I had a trail camera real close there too, and I got a picture of some some really nice bucks, um, a couple that would probably have been over 150. But I'm looking for giants, and uh, I think one of the keys to killing giants is you, you don't burn out your areas until that giant's there. In other words, you don't go in there and educate every deer to, that's on the property to where your stands are, and then when the giant shows up, well you're on to kill him. You've already run them years before he was there because you told all the deer on the property, you stay away from that tree. So, uh, what I like to do on a spot like that is get my stand ready and I'll have a camera in there again next year and the year after and the year after. And the year that the giant shows up, I'm ready to go. I mean, that stands there and, and there's, I'm not running in there and hanging a stand and banging around and trimming and shooting rings and this and that. I'll be ready to go. There will be a big deer in there again next year. Now, whether he's big enough that I want to shoot him or not, I don't know. But, uh, you know, those are some of the factors. I grew up an old cattle pasture that's been abandoned for a few years, and it's growing up with weeds and saplings and briars. It gets absolutely no better than that. And, in fact, if I was looking to buy property today, you know, these everybody wants to head for the big woods and those those wooded properties, you know, they bring a premium because that's what a deer hunter thinks is the best cover in the world. But if I was looking to buy a property and I wanted to get one at a, at a bargain price, I'd look for an old abandoned cow farm that, that hadn't had cattle on it for a few years. And I'm telling you what, it wouldn't take long. You'd be shooting some giants. <laughs> well, then I think I know what the, I think I know what the type of properties I need to be looking for then. Cause <laughs> it, actually it's funny. Yeah. My, my dad's property actually has, it was so it's got a bunch of page wire fence all around it's all dilapidated and kind of broke down because at one point that parcel was part of a larger farm and that there's an area in there that kind of is, sits in the middle of the timber that is um it's exactly what you're saying it's it, it was old pasture ground you know what i mean um mm-hmm. and the bucks will just bed in that stuff because i mean it's still we don't mow it or anything we don't you know, we don't, you know, manicure it or anything like that. We just kind of let it get gnarly because it's tall enough that deer just kind of lay down and disappear. In it. You know what I mean? So, and I've definitely right. seen deer just bedded in there. He snuck up on, uh, on a buck actually, you know, one of the nicer deer we had on the property and this, you know, not to go back on the ethics ran again, but, uh, you know, the old man snuck up on it and, uh, had it, you know, there dead to rights. Um, he and I kind of talked about what we wanted to take off the property and it, he couldn't get a good look at it. It, it gave him a good look. And uh, once he recognized it wasn't the right one and he, he let it go, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it was just bedded out in the it, kind of two things you mentioned. It, it was bedded out in the middle of, you know, out in the middle of creation. There was nothing really around it other than that tall grass, other than that, that pasture grass, but that was it. Um, yep. so I might have to be paying a little bit more attention, less attention to the timber, maybe a little bit more attention to that, uh, to that grass. Then it seems like, but, you know, you just mentioned, you know, that you, you know, of course you're, you're known for, you know, killing big deer, you know, giants, of, in fact, especially, you know, last year, I'm just curious, you know, what you think, you know, what is, I guess the one thing that, that light bulb moment for you as a deer hunter, where it just kind of clicked and you went from killing good deer 
to, to killing great deer that kind of allowed you to kind of turn into the type of hunter you are today? Well, it, uh, it happened one season years ago. I mean, back in the 19 late eighties, I, uh, ATVs, four wheel ATVs had just come out and, uh, and I bought one one summer and, and that fall, I mean, I was covering some ground I, and at that time I was trapping and, and hunting other things too, but, uh, I was covering a lot of ground and, and back then you didn't have the issues that you would today. Um, I, I had permission to, you know, where I was hunting and things, but you could really cover a lot more ground in less time. And what I noticed that, that fall that I had that, that first fall I had that ATV was that I was that the bigger bucks I was seeing, they were not in the, the wooded areas. And they were out like on the, on fence rows in the middle of nowhere. A little foxtail patch out in the middle of a section with maybe a single tree around it or something. The, those bucks weren't staying where I thought they were. And I realized that if I wanted to kill them bucks, I was going to have to hunt in different locations than what I had been. And, uh, the reason those bucks were there, they were out there to get get away from the hunting pressure. And it became so, I, I know, so obvious to me that I, I needed to avoid other hunters as much as those bucks were avoiding other hunters. So if I was hunting a property where I knew there was another hunter, why well, I, I just started assuming that other hunter has chased off any mature bucks. I, I got to go elsewhere. And so in, instead of hunting bigger properties, a lot of, the places I started hunting were smaller pieces of cover. Um, but that light bulb moment, so to speak, was when I realized that uh, I, I couldn't hunt the same places where I'd been if I expected to kill big deer. I had to do the same thing they were doing, and I had to get away from the hunting pressure, even if it meant going out and sitting in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and to kind of build on that, the Trump buck I shot last year was a perfect example. Um, he was on a little fence row. I mean, literally, the, the only cover in the entire section was, was this little fence row. And, uh, in fact, the two guys that I shot him in the evening went back to recover the next morning. And I, I took a couple guys with me. Kevin Boyer, a friend of mine, uh, was a partner in Real World uh, for 10 years. And then uh, Ron Slifer, um, who has a bloodhound service you know, for tracking wounded deer. So I take these guys the next morning and, and then we drive across, you know, there, Ron's following me in his truck and we get out to, to where we're going to start tracking. And these guys look at me like, why in the world were you hunting out here? <laughs> in fact, they couldn't even believe anybody in their right mind would even think the deer hunt such a place. But, but that's where I'd learned over the years that those giant bucks go. They, they, wherever the hunters are, that's not where the big bucks are. I mean, occasionally they'll be there chasing does or whatever. But for the most part, those deer are going to be someplace totally different. And, uh, you know, that light bulb moment was that one fall, the first fall that I had that ATV and I was trapping coyotes and, and such and covering a lot of ground doing it. And, and I was going to and covering some places and getting back into, you know, out of the way places where I'd never been before or hadn't spent much time. And I just realized that I needed to go look elsewhere if I wanted to kill the giants. Right. And as they say, the rest is history, right? <laughs> well, 
<laughs> I, you know, I'm still learning. I, I, I certainly don't know it all, but you know, one of my goals each season is to end the season a, a better hunter than when I started. So you just keep plugging away and putting together pieces of the puzzle like that. Right. Well, on on that note, you know, trying to be a better hunter every year, you know, and, and, and learn something new. The one thing that I've picked up from you, and I was just curious to pick your brain about it a little bit, and this is the first year I, I tried it. I, I didn't have a ton of success, but I also didn't have a whole lot of time to, to dedicate to it. Um, but I've heard you talk about in the past that you really like that late rut time period, you know, for an opportunity to kill a mature buck. You know, and when I say late rut time period, I'm talking around that Thanksgiving kind of time frame. Yeah, so what is yep. it? What is it around that time that really kind of appeals to you? Well, and this year was not a typical rut in, in the Midwest, especially because our temperatures got cold in October and they stayed cold. You know, typically you'll have a cold front come through and it'll it'll be cool for three or four days and then it warms right back up. Well, it didn't happen that way this year. It, it got cool in, in the middle of October and it stayed cold, and those deer started rutting. Uh, or the bucks started rutting, and the does didn't come in heat any earlier than they they always do. But but I see more rut sign in October than I've ever seen in my life in October, and I've been in the deer woods over forty years. And uh, that there was just there's never been the, the scrapes and the rubs that I see in this October. And what happened this year was those bucks started, uh, you know, running early. The does didn't come in heat any early earlier, but by the time Thanksgiving rolled around. Them bucks were wore out, I believe, and uh, we didn't have the late rut activity that we have in past years. But typically, what happens is, uh, you, you know, the bucks are as we as November or October gives way to November, and, and the rut starts getting close. The bucks are getting more anxious each each day. We'll, we'll get a cold front, and they'll run hard, and, but that only lasts for two or three days, and then it warms back up, and they settle down a little bit, but by the time November or Thanksgiving rolls around, um, the does are, are hot. Those are getting harder to find. And earlier in the, the month, uh, a mature buck, he could just go basically from one hot doe to the next. And there was very little downtime between hot does, but you start getting towards the end of November and there's more downtime between those. He's got to look harder and go farther between hot does and that's when he's really vulnerable he's not near as vulnerable with a doe as he is when he's looking right so uh you know that uh, that thanksgiving weekend there was a period uh it's probably been close to 20 years ago now but there was a period of five consecutive years where the biggest buck i seen from a stand each of those years was during thanksgiving weekend and it uh you know, I mentioned Roger Rotha earlier, back when uh, I was probably 20 years older. So, uh, you know, Roger preached uh, how good Thanksgiving weekend was. And, and I always remember that. It's, that's one of the lessons I picked up from him. And and I paid attention over the years. And sure enough, you know, Thanksgiving weekend, there's a, there's generally a lot of big bucks on their feet. And it's because they're, they're between hot does and they're having to cover a lot of ground looking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Tim, I know you were saying this year was a little bit different, you know, because of the, you know, how it got cold early and it just never seemed to snap out of it like it typically does. So, you know, typically, you know, if you had a normal kind of late Thanksgiving time frame type of scenario, 
you know, how would you, would you hunt that this time period specifically any different than you would early November? Or are you still no, kind of, not really. No. Okay. So you're not, you're not, no, probably, I would still hunt. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I would hunt the, the you know, the downwind edges of, of dope bedding areas, mm-hmm. hunt terrain features, you know, and especially if you can combine the two, um, you know, terrain features on the downwind edge of dope bedding areas. Mm-hmm. Is there any is there any terrain feature specifically that you really like that you kind of gravitate toward? Well, pinch points, inside mm-hmm. corners, or uh, you know, bends in a creek where it pushes all the deer activity, uh, you know, around the bluff or something like that. Right. Have you ever seen? Because I've I've experienced this in this in uh in this spot in Ohio that I that I hunt. Um, I'm just curious if you if you've ever kind of witnessed this as well, but so what I've kind of started figuring out on this particular particular ridge is it it, it typically comes in every year it seems like that I've hunted there uh, within the same kind of you know two two ish day window three ish day window roughly um, and what I started piecing together and, I, and this is I picked up from a fellow named Bronson Strickland he's you know he's a a deer biologist out at uh, Mississippi State University, I believe, is where right. where it's at. And uh, we were talking one day on the podcast, and he had mentioned I'd never known this. And you, you may have known this because you you know had a herd of deer and stuff, but I didn't realize that doe fawns are past their mother's genetic breeding date genetically. So if the bomb, you know, mother doe comes in on just call it November sixth, that doe fawn will come in November sixth around the same time, right? Or the, you know, mm-hmm. annually as well, give or take a you know day or so on each side of it. And what we know about mm-hmm. doe families are is they stick together typically, right? The bucks disperse, right? So they don't have inbreeding, and doe fam- families kind of huddle in the same area historically. And so right. what I started picking up, and I'm just curious if you started to see this stuff too, is that I noticed that certain areas that I've that I've seen does getting chased, or you know, um, you know, during the rut where I know that that a doe's hot. And if I pay attention to that, right, even if that doe is killed, that area usually comes in about the same time because that entire doe family should have probably a very similar breeding cycle, right? Because they're all probably related to a degree uh, within reason. Yep. And so then what I started doing was just kind of paying attention to where I've seen that in different properties and kind of time start to try to time my hunts on different properties based on what I've seen that rutting activity because i know that those does should be coming in back in about about those same times do you follow something similar to that or have you seen the same type of thing or i'm just curious what your experiences were well i definitely can relate to, to what he says about the does coming in heat whenever i had the, the captive bird you know that there was individual does that you could just mark on the calendar what day they were going to be in heat hmm. year after year um as far as with the wild deer, I, I never put it together like that. Uh, that's actually the first that I've heard that, and it makes total sense to me. But one thing I have noticed is, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I've got about 50 trail cameras out in the woods. And I can just about tell you that when these bucks, like individual bucks will shift their range in the fall, uh, about half of them will. They will do it on almost the exact day. Um, if I get a buck's picture at a certain location on a certain day, and that's a buck that I'm going to be targeting in the future, um, you know, I, I know where to look for him and what day to look for him to be there. And, you know, a lot of times when I find a shooter buck, I go back through my database of 
of photos looking for that buck in previous years and where he was at on particular dates in previous years because you can pretty much mark it on your calendar that if he was at a certain spot on November 8th last year, next year, November 8th, if he's still alive, he's pretty much going to be there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've experienced that once um, where I was able to find a, a deer that was going to, you know, react on a historical pattern. Do you find that that holds more true the older they get? Because just, you know, I'm sure you know this, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but Pennsylvania being as um, heavily hunted as it is, you don't get a lot of deer that get to maturity, you know. So a three-year-old deer in Pennsylvania is, you know, uh, if you have a nice three-year-old you're a three-year-old on your property, you know, and you get a shot opportunity and it's, you know, within the goal of what you're looking for, you should probably take that shot opportunity because it's not a, a super common, you know, uh, age class of deer. Um, but I'm just curious, do you see that even in younger deer or do you, is there a, is there a period in their life cycle where it's like they start to follow those kind of habitual historical patterns? Well, to be honest, you know, I'm, I'm hunting for deer that are, I'm trying to let him get to six years old. Right. And, uh, I mean, it'd take a really special five-year-old for me to shoot him, depending on the property he's on. So I- I'm really not focusing on an individual deer until he's three years old. And the reason for it is too many of them get killed if you start watching them when they're two years old. And then I have, you know, found some good two-year-olds that I tried to keep an eye on. But when I really start paying attention to a buck is when he survived the gun season of his, of the year, he's three and a half. If he makes it through the gun season when he's three and a half, the odds of him making it to maturity have really skyrocketed. Okay. Because he's really at, at three and a half. There's not very many people in the, very many hunters are ever going to let him go, especially here in the Midwest. A, a three and a half year old buck here in the Midwest is, is pretty impressive animal. And most deer hunters are not going to let him walk. So, you know, for me to relate to your situation is kind of tough because right. I'm not even watching them when they're that young. Right. Yeah. See, we're here in PA. It's like you get a you get a two year old that has a that that has promise. It's like you start watching him. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like you're hoping. Uh, he, I wait a year later. Yeah, you're hoping he makes it one more year. You know what I mean? Uh huh. But uh, Don, I want to be sensitive to your time. Not only that, but you've given—I've learned so much from you from listening to podcasts and reading stuff that you've written. The fact that I was able to actually share something that was new information to you means that I—I have—I've <laughs> achieved something. So I'm going to stop there and just ask John if he has any more questions before we uh, let you go. Every time I walk near, if you if you just get within ten feet of Don Higgins, just through osmosis, you you become a better deer hunter. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> you're, you're liable to hear an opinion you don't want to hear if you get within ten feet. <laughs> well, I guess the good thing for me, a lot of our opinions are very similar. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. well. You know, I try as I get older to be a little more respectful of other people's opinions, and, and I think I have to some degree, but there's some things that are just black and white. You're either right or you're wrong. There you That's go. right. That's right. Well, hey, before we yeah. do before we do let you go, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to let folks out there know where they can find out more about you, where they can find your products and anything that, uh, you, know, you know, anything that you're working on. Well, they can visit my personal website, which is HigginsOutdoors.com. Uh, also, if they're interested in the seed products or, or the deer nutrition products, if they go to realworldwildlifeproducts.com, um, they can find more information there. And 
you know, you can go on my Facebook page. Um, I've got two of them. I got, you know, my personal page, but I've also got a business page, uh, Higgins Outdoors slash Don Higgins. Uh, and I try to answer every email, every message that's sent to me, every phone call I try to return. And, uh, I, I don't want to be, God didn't make me any better than he did anybody else. I, I try to stay humble and down to earth. So, uh, I, you know, I just try to, to respond to anybody that takes the time out of their day to write me a message. I think I owe it to them to respond. So, you know, just feel free to comment. If you disagree with me, that's fine. We can argue on, on the email just as well as we can on the phone or in person. (laughs) That doesn't mean that I don't respect your opinion. I just, um, want you to hear mine as well. So, you know, I hope to hear from some people and see it's a, the shows this this winter. I'm going to be speaking at the Iowa Deer Classic, and uh, there's a show on the Indiana Michigan line, the Michiana Outdoor Show. I'll be speaking there. I'll be at the ATA Show, Real World uh, Wildlife Products. We'll have a booth at the ATA Show. Stop in, say hello. I'd love to meet you. And uh, you know, I just hope everyone has a a great Christmas and a successful hunting season. I look forward to meeting more deer hunters. Awesome. Well, I, I do appreciate you coming on. Uh, appreciate your presence in the outdoor industry too. You're uh, you're one of a kind, and I'm glad you're uh, you're you're on our side. And uh, I might have to hit you up for a little um, soybean uh, planting uh, tutorial here when we get closer to spring. And then I'll be out at ATA so, with John, so I'll try to uh, I'll try to catch up with you uh, when I'm out there as well. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Maybe we can sit down and have lunch, or go out to, for supper after the show when he. I'd love it, man. It's a, it's, it's make that happen. Now I will say I am at your disposal whenever you're ready to go grab some grub. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on guys. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. We'd like to, of course, thank Don for joining us. Be sure to check him out at two places. First, his realworldwildlifeproducts.com website. Uh, Check that out. That's where he has all the different seed, mineral, supplement, uh, etc. that he has going on in the in the deer nutrition kind of space. Also check him out at HigginsOutdoors.com. Here's where you'll find his blog, uh, information on how to get in contact with him if you're looking for someone to come out and do any type of land or habitat consultations as well. I'll place all those links, of course, in the blog post show notes so you guys can easily find them. We'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening, and if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super pumped if you do those two things for us. Before we shut this jammer down, we need to give a big shout-out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tecamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Downwind. And until next time... We'll see y'all. Damaged heads, broken letters. Rationalize yourself in numbers, but I gotta get away from here. Gotta get away from here.
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.